morning. We'll turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56 is our text for this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And if you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's Word, uh, please do so. If you're not able to stand, it's okay. You can follow along as you uh, sit down. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored at the shore, to the, to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were being cured. This is the Word of God. You can, you can have a seat. Well, the title of this morning's message is, Is Your Heart Tender or Hardened? Is Your Heart Tender or Hardened? In a sermon delivered April 7th, 19, or 1881, C.H. Spurgeon spoke these words um, specifically on the importance of responding in faith to the Gospel and to the Word of God. He said this, listen again, there is another immediate effect of the word of the Lord, which follows as quickly as the blossom appears upon the almond tree. Upon some hearers, it produces an instant hardening. You remember how Paul wrote, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish to the one. We are the savor of death unto death and to the other, the savor of life unto life. You, dear friends, are deriving from every gospel sermon that you hear either life unto death or else death unto death. If you get no good from it, you will assuredly get harm. An unbelieving hearing of the gospel is a multiplication of curses to your soul. Another sermon for which you have to give an account. Another rejected exhortation recorded against you. Another earnest invitation which you have refused and for which you will be held responsible. You are heaping up to yourselves wrath against a day of wrath, even while you hear the word of the Lord. I am not now talking about what will happen to you when you die or when you rise for the final judgment. I'm speaking about what is happening now. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. End quote. Sobering words. Sobering words on the importance of, of cultivating a soft and tender heart to Christ and to the gospel. 
It reminds us of the fact that the more that you and I are exposed to the person and the work of Christ, the more accountable that you and I are to responding in worship and faith when we hear about what Christ has done. And of course, this faith, having been birthed in a person, faith in Jesus Christ, is not just an intellectual knowledge or an acknowledgement of some facts about Jesus or living by some set of moral standards or a moral code detached from Jesus Christ. What is faith? Faith is a heartfelt commitment of love whereby you transfer your trust from yourself and your own resources and your own works to Jesus Christ. To fully embracing His claims about who He said He is, that He is God, and what He's done to pay for your personal sins. And that faith, having been born, grows and matures in a Christian as you and I walk with Christ in the Christian life. You know, that's, the, that's what Jesus was constantly looking for when He ministered in His humanity on this earth. He was constantly looking for faith in people. People who truly abandoned trust in themselves and transferred trust to Him. In the light of who He was, in the light of what He was about to do, He was looking for that kind of faith in the crowds and the multitudes, the masses that were after Him. He was looking for that kind of faith, especially in His disciples, And this morning, in the text that I just read, we have a wonderful opportunity to think and consider this issue of faith. What does it mean to live a life of trust in God's protection? Now, you remember the context. Jesus has just performed a a great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, really 20,000 plus people he fed, including women and children. And he showed the people his unmatched power and provision for them. We talked about last week that we can find rest in this one who is Lord, who is able to provide for all of our needs, not wants, but our needs. But now on the heels of that great miracle of the feeding of the 20,000 plus, we have the miracle of his walking on water and him showing us his sovereignty over nature. And I want to remind you again that the purpose of these miracles that we continue to see, including the feeding of the 5,000 and today the miracle of Jesus walking on water, beloved, is so that you and I continue to behold Jesus Christ in all of His glory. So that, as we do that, we're driven to worship and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And I want you to just think about this. Just in the Gospel of Mark alone, we find 19 of the 37 miracles of Jesus Christ recorded in the Gospels. 19 of the 37, more than half of the miracles of Christ are recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. And 16 of those 19 miracles are recorded in the first eight chapters alone of the Gospel of Mark. Why does Mark do this? Because he wants us to see through the miracles of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the God-man who alone qualifies to be the Savior of your personal sins. Jesus is God, Mark wants us to know. And so this morning, we want to see this. And in particular, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord over nature, And thus, you and I can trust in His protection no matter what we face. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over nature, and we can trust Him, beloved, no matter what we face, that He will protect us, that He will guard us, that He will watch over us. And we see this in three scenes in particular here in this this passage. 
But before we begin looking at the narrative here, I want to ask you a diagnostic question. That in the quietness of your own heart, I want you to really consider and ponder this question. I want to ask you, what's the condition of your heart this morning toward Christ? Is your heart tender or hardened to Jesus Christ? What's the condition of your heart? You know, each day we are confronted with decisions and small and big choices, aren't we? Every single day, we are confronted with fork-on-the-road moments where we experience struggles and all of that, be they of a physical nature, be they of an emotional nature, be they of a financial nature, be they of a spiritual nature. And during those moments, the question is, will you and I evidence a tender, soft heart toward the Lord and that we trust Him in the midst of those choices and decisions? Or will we evidence a hardened heart by fearing our circumstances, by relying on ourselves, by by trying to live life on our own um, strength, by our own moral bootstraps, looking to our own resources and our own abilities? What is the condition of your heart this morning toward Jesus Christ? Well, this was the question that really confronted the masses and especially his disciples as we look at this account because his disciples come to grips with the fact that Jesus is their sovereign Lord and thus they can trust in his protection no matter what they face. And we can learn the same lesson as well. There are three scenes in particular here that I want us to look at. First of all, I want us to see the devotion of Christ. The devotion of Christ in verses 45 and 46. We see here that our Lord, even in the face of tragedy, the murder in the previous context of, uh, or the news of the fact that his cousin John the Baptist had been gruesomely beheaded, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of busyness where people are flocking to him constantly, even in the midst of impending trouble, Christ's devotion, beloved, did not falter. His priority was go to his, going to his father in prayer. Look at verse 45. We are told in verse 45 that immediately, that is after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. Why the abrupt dismissal of his disciples? The text doesn't tell us specifically, but in the parallel account of John chapter 6 and verse 15, we are told that after the feeding of the 5,000, the people must have been so mesmerized and so captivated by Jesus' physical ability to provide for them, for their physical needs, that they intended to make Him King. They wanted Jesus to lead a revolution, to lead a rebellion, to bring them relief and rescue from Roman oppression and the, the wicked Herod Antipas. But Jesus hadn't come to lead a political and military revolution. He hadn't come for that. He'd come as the God-man to suffer and die to pay for sins. And so before establishing an earthly rule, which he will do, by the way, in a new heavens and a new earth in the future, he came to set sinners free from the penalty and tyranny of sin over their lives if they will put their trust in him alone. That was Jesus' mission, was to go to the cross. Isn't that what Mark is doing? Immediately, immediately, he quickly wants to move us to the cross of Jesus Christ, 
That's why Jesus came. That was his mission. And so Jesus doesn't want his disciples to get caught up in all of this talk of rebellion and revolution and all of that. So he made his disciples get into the boat. He compelled them, forced them to get on the boat and meet him on the other side. It seems they were reluctant, not wanting to leave Jesus, but Jesus firmly insisted for them to leave and go to the other side, which would have been no more than two to three miles at most, traveling along the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, would have taken them no more than two to three, maybe even four miles to get there. But what I want you to see here is the Lord's devotion. I want you to mark this devotion of Christ. Instead of getting carried away by the reaction of the crowds, after bidding thousands of people farewell, think about that, you're talking about a lot of people that he's saying goodbye to, even in the midst of all that's going on, Jesus communes with his Father. Verse 46, after bidding them farewell, that is the multitudes, he left for the mountain to pray. He found a, a mountain peak. There are many of those along the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he went to one of these mountain peaks to spend time with his Father. Now, think about this. From a human perspective, Jesus is physically exhausted from interacting with all of these excited people, fickle people. He is heavy-hearted due to the fact that his half, I mean, his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded, and he heard about that. So he's weighed down emotionally with that. And yet, he gets away to pray. To pray. And it shouldn't surprise us. If you've read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly devoting himself to prayer, isn't he? Over and over again. Jesus prays in private, prays in public. Prays when it's calm, prays when it's busy. Prays in the morning, prays in the middle of the day, prays at night, prays all night long. One in the morning, two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning. When was the last time you and I did that? Prayed all night long. He prayed when facing hard decisions, like the choosing of the twelve, who were going to be those that he was going to pass on the baton to. He prays when in pain. He prays when he's grieving. He is going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane in deep anguish to his Father. Not my will be done, but your will be done, Father. Jesus is constantly in communion with his Heavenly Father when we survey the Gospels. Constantly spending time with God. So much so, that in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. Teach us to pray. We've been watching you. We've been watching. Teach us to pray. And then obviously he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Why? Luke 5.16 tells us that even as Jesus' popularity was growing, Jesus would often slip away to the des desert places and pray. Constantly. That's what he would do in the midst of all that was going on. We can speculate at this time what he was praying for. Praying for himself, perhaps. Praying for his father's comfort. Praying for the people. Praying for the mission ahead as he continues to head to the cross. But I submit to you that the greatest thing he was probably in prayer for, in light of what follows here, is for the faith, the strengthening of the faith of his disciples, that their hearts would become more and more soft and tender to his claims, so that they would be ready for his mission after he died, to have the baton passed on to them. But what a lesson for us. What a lesson for us about the priority of private devotion. 
to our Heavenly Father or with our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you this morning, beloved, do you pray? How consistent are you in prayer? Let me ask you, when when you're burdened with burdens, heavy loads in life that you are not able to carry on your own, that seem overwhelming from a human perspective, do you pray? Do you cast your burdens upon the Lord? Do you humble yourself, 1 Peter 5, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you? Do you pray when you're fearful? Fearful about relationships. Fearful about the future. Fearful about the circumstances that you find yourself in. Fearful about finances. Fearful about your family. Fearful about circumstances in America. Fearful about the things going on in the world. Do you pray in response to those fears? What about when things are busy or hectic? How intentional and deliberate are you about setting aside time to spend time with your Heavenly Father? Failing to plan is planning to fail, right? If we don't have foresight and we don't set aside that time with the Lord in private devotion to prayer, it's just going to get put on the back burner and eventually you're going to realize as you look back, you don't hardly ever pray throughout the day, but also in those focused times of prayer. What about when things are calm or uneventful? Do you pray? When things from a human perspective seem to be just going calm, there aren't major trials, all of that. Life is just normal from a human perspective. Do you pray and thank God that He's allowing you to live well in this world? Even when things are calm and uneventful? See, in His humanity, Jesus was devoted to daily, consistent communion with His Heavenly Father. He was a man of prayer. What a lesson for us on the priority of private devotion. Donald Barnhouse writes this, quote, If Jesus in His great power and oneness with God could feel the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, how much more you and I need to go to the Father for the strength that fills our weakness and the knowledge that fills our ignorance. Prayer brings us into a fellowship with God that nothing else can provide, end quote. See, prayer is the fruit of a tender heart and a life of faith. That our hearts are tender and soft to our Heavenly Father. That we want Him to give us perspective. That that we want Him to to shape our thoughts. That we want Him to grant us endurance in the midst of, of difficulties and struggles that we face. Every day you and I display faith, abandonment of self, and trust in God by how much we pray. Throughout the day and in focused times of prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what's the result of that? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wow. Colossians 4, 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And in the passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul says to the Ephesian believers, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Four times that word all is there, about the the kinds and varieties of our prayers, and that it's to be regular, and that we ought to be praying for all people with all diligence and all fervency. 
See, if we understood, beloved, you and I, our need and the battle that we fight here on this earth, that yes, we fight, there's, there's a visible, physical world that we can see and touch with our hands, but ultimately, Ephesians chapter 6 says, we are in a spiritual war, aren't we? So, put on the armor of God, and Ephesians six eighteen through 20, go to the Lord consistently in prayer. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the example of that. He was one who was devoted to time with His heavenly Father in the midst of all of this. Secondly, let's notice the salvation of Christ. The salvation of Christ in verses 47 through 52. If Jesus prayed for his disciples that they would be strengthened in their faith, here is the amazing experience in verses 47 through 52 that led to that strengthening of faith. And I want you to notice there is distress here in the lives of Jesus' disciples. The distress of the disciples under this second point. We're told that after the feeding of the 20,000 plus or so, Jesus sent his disciples away to meet him on the other side, and he went away to pray by himself. Who knows for how long he prayed? Generally, I think we can um, assume certain things. But some time elapses in Mark's account between verses 46 and 47, and we know this. Because the parallel account of John chapter 6 and verse 16 tells us that his disciples went away in the evening. That would have been sometime between 6 and 9 p.m. to head to the other side to wait for Jesus. And so Mark fast forwards to later that night when he begins here verse 47. Remember, Mark just is quick to the point. He wants to get to the cross. So very quickly, verse 47, he says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus was still praying. And all of a sudden, verse 47 tells us that the disciples found themselves somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere there. Don't miss this. They had initially embarked on a short two to four mile boat ride along the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee. But now, all of a sudden, hours later, they are in the middle of the sea. What happened? What happened? Well, a problem arose, right? Look at verse 48. It says that the, that the wind was against them. The parallel account of John chapter 6 and verse 18 tells us that, that the sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Strong. Megalos. A mega wind had blown them three to four miles, says John chapter 6 verse 19, south to the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So for hours, now they're in the middle of this huge struggle. Verse 48 says that they were straining at the oars, which means that they were being harassed, literally tortured by the violent crashing of the waves. Tortured as they tried to row or steer the boat, trying to get control of it. The other parallel account of Matthew, chapter 14 and verse 24, says that the waves were tormenting or harassing the boat. Think about this. This went on for hours and hours and hours. Approximately 9 to 12 hours. Yes, six of these men, maybe as many as eight of them, were experienced fishermen. They had navigated these waters of the Sea of Galilee many times, but no one could keep going for this long in this struggle, in this fight. Imagine how hopeless and and helpless they must have felt. They had no control of what was taking place here. 
what had begun as a short boat ride had become a, a nightmare. They were now far from their destination. Kind of reminds us of life, doesn't it? It reminds us of the helplessness and the hopelessness that sometimes our circumstances seem. Maybe you have some health issues and your health is quickly deteriorating. Or you have some chronic pains and, and it's, you, seem, you feel so helpless and it's beyond your control and you keep crying out to the Lord, Lord, bring relief to me on these things. We oftentimes feel helpless in life, don't we? Maybe you're in a difficult work situation, a difficult environment. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're having issues in your marriage. Maybe issues in your parenting. Maybe issues with coworkers. There are so many aspects of our lives, don't we, when we often feel so helpless and so hopeless. And in those moments, we cry out, Lord, where are you? Where are you? Well, the disciples weren't necessarily doing that. They were scared and terrified, weren't they? Notice the salvation of the Lord. Look at verse 48. Again, typical of Mark, so quick and to the point. Notice verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse 48? Seeing them, right? Seeing them, so quick, so to the point. From whatever mountain peak Mark is telling us, Jesus is praying from, he knows exactly um, where his disciples are, even being miles away from him now. He knows exactly where where they're at. He never lost sight of them. He could see them struggling. And Mark is telling us something through this, isn't he? Only one who is more than man, who is God, is able to be all-knowing this way, omniscient, all-knowing, and is able to see his disciples this way. Because Jesus is more than just a man. He is who? God. He's God. And then a second miracle happens. If the first miracle is the all-knowing nature of Jesus Christ pointing to His deity, that He's God, there's a second miracle that happens in verse 48. Notice, at about the fourth watch of the night, this is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., it's nighttime. Most believe that this was around Passover time in the spring when, when there's a full moon showing. At this time, verse 48, He came to them walking on the sea. The verb tense here pictures this as as happening before your very eyes. Here is Jesus walking toward them, making steady progress towards his disciples. I mean, this is this is amazing, isn't it? Can you even picture this? This is one of those miracles that one day in the new heavens and the new earth, I want to watch the heavenly YouTube channel and see how what this looked like, right? Jesus making progress. I mean, that must have been eerie, right? And then notice in verse 48, and he intended to pass by them. What in the world is that all about? I mean, at first glance, it sounds like Jesus was going to just kind of pass by. Hey, guys, good seeing you. Sorry about all your trouble. Hope it turns out well for you. If you make it to the other side, I'll see you there. See ya. At first glance, the translation is a bit misleading, at least in the New American Standard until you realize that the Greek is better rendered here, 
He was desiring or willing to pass alongside of them or to pass before them. In other words, he intended for them to see him. He was deliberate and purposeful about this. Ever have one of your little ones, moms or or dads, do something amazing from their little human perspective and they say, Daddy, look! Look at what I did! Look at what I'm able to do! Something simple. But why do they call attention to that? They want you to see them. They want you to be proud of them. They want you to affirm them. Talk about how great they are, right? They want your approval. I don't mean to say that Jesus needs their affirmation here because, you know, he needs his low self-esteem elevated here. But it's a similar idea, isn't there? Isn't it? Jesus intended for his disciples to see them, beloved, so that to see him so that they would see his great power, recognize him and worship him and that their faith would be strengthened. He intended for them to see him. He had prayed for their faith. He had prayed for their faith. But what a moment. What a moment. You know, I think we've read this account so much and other accounts that, you know, our hearts become so hardened, so calloused that we don't appreciate what happens here in this account. Even the feeding of the 5,000, right? But Mark is saying, pay attention. Behold, the God-man ruling over the normal created laws of nature. He does what is not normal for a human being to do because he is God. He's God. He should drown, but doesn't. He should be knocked down by the violent waves, but he isn't. He should be shaken by the powerful wind, but isn't. Why? Because Jesus is a sovereign Lord over nature. Thus, he can protect you and I. We can trust him, right? We can trust him. And don't forget, Mark was writing, most likely somewhere between 64 and 68 AD, where the persecution under Nero was beginning and it was going to culminate later on. So, as these Gentile Christians are reading this account about Jesus walking on water and doing this kind of a thing, it was an encouragement to them that they can trust God in the midst of the beginning signs of persecution, right? So can we. So can we. Now, the sad thing, at least initially, is that the disciples don't even recognize Him. Remember, it's night... The wind is, is howling ferociously. Waves are crashing violently. Water is splashing everywhere. They are physically and emotionally drained and scared. So, verse 49, when they saw him walking in, on the sea, this is from Mark's perspective, they supposed that it was a ghost. A ghost. So even though it's pitch black, they are able to see an image. But they think it's some kind of a, of a ghost. The word is phantasma. Phantom, ghost. From all I could read um, this week about the, the Roman Empire, there was a strong sense of superstition during those days and, and evil spirits appearing to people at night. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, it was a, a polytheistic culture of many gods, the worship of many gods, many evil spirit beings. People were very superstitious, very fearful. So, verse 49, they cried out. This is a loud crying out. This is high-pitched cry of terror and horror and of panic. Why? Verse 50. 
for they all saw him and were terrified. Strong language. They were shaken, stirred within, in horror. Ever been in terror like that? Or similar? I remember as a three-year-old, a, an uncle came, came to take care of a few of us kids um, when I was living in Mexico at the time. And for some reason, when it got nighttime, this mean uncle decided to put on some a monster outfit. And for about an hour in the dark, he chased us around and we literally thought he was a monster. I, I've never experienced such terror, panic, horror as a kid. Imagine the disciples here. Imagine these tough guys, fully grown. You know, they're not wet behind the ears. They're experienced men. Many of them are hardcore fishermen, and yet they are crying out like little babies here. And then notice verse 50, with full authority, immediately Jesus spoke with them and said to them, take courage. It is I do not be afraid. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. To commence, take courage, take heart, or be of good cheer, and do not be afraid. Literally, you can translate this, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. To use our language today, man up, guys. Man up. To commence, but notice, sandwiched in between are the words, right? Verse 50, it is is I. Don't just read past those words, beloved. Ego a me. Literally, I am. I am. Remember what God told Moses when the, when, uh, to say to the Israelites, if they were to ask him, why should we follow you essentially? Tell them, Exodus 3.14, tell them, I am has sent you. I am. Wow. This is not a ghost. This is not a phantom. This is Jesus, the God-man, sovereign Lord over nature who is amongst them. Thus, they can trust Him. They can be courageous. Scripture repeatedly reminds us of the fact that as believers, because God is for us and God is with us as Christians, we need not be afraid, right? Right? Listen to some of these scriptures. Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 56 and verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, I have put my trust. What can mere man do to me? Psalm 34 and verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Do you remember what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 1? When He was taking over the helm leading the Israelites? He said, Joshua, be strong and courageous. I will be with you just as I have been with Moses. I will be with you. It wasn't about Moses and how great of a leader he was. It wasn't about Joshua and how well prepared Moses had made this young man to take over. It was about the God who was with them. Right? So it is with us, beloved. So it is with us. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake. 
The disciples experienced such peace once they recognized who was with them. Look at verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. That is, they were amazed. And verse 52 tells us why. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You know what Mark is doing there? He's giving us insight into the present state of the faith of our Lord's disciples. They had not arrived. They didn't understand and grasp the significance of who was before them. Isn't that the story of our lives as well? People who are in process? It doesn't matter how much God provides, how much God protects, how much God does to meet our, our needs. We simply constantly have faith mingled with doubt, right? Constantly doubt. Now what's amazing about this, and I want you to notice this, is that Mark leaves it there. At the unbelief of the disciples. Why? I think so that we feel the weight of the condition of the disciples' hearts before something happens, though. Look at Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28 with me. This is the parallel account. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 28. This is before Jesus jumped into the boat. Or onto the boat. Verse 28 of Matthew 14. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Now, we shouldn't be so hard on Peter, right? How many of us would even have the courage to ask God to let us do this? Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly the Son of God, or God's Son. The disciples got it. They grew stronger in their faith, being convinced that Jesus is God. This is why they they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Again, isn't this our experience? So reminiscent of, of our walk as believers. When hardships hit, initially we function atheistically as if, as if God doesn't exist, even though we would never say that, that God is not. We function atheistically as if the Lord is not there. He's nowhere to be found. He's abandoned us. We resort to anxiety as if the Lord is not protecting us, as if he hasn't hundreds and thousands of times already protected us from our worst fears, right? You know what happened to me the other day? I almost got run over by a car. Kid you not, right here, intersection, where that teriyaki chicken place is. Okay, be careful with it, right? It's crazy. I almost got run over by a car. And after the initial shock and outrage, at least internally, I didn't start yelling at the person, right? Did anybody see me doing it? I'm just kidding. After that initial internal shock and and frustration, outrage, it struck me. And I started praying on my way home, Lord, every day of my life, this could have happened. 
Every time, I, I walked hundreds of times to various places, driven my car, flown on airplanes to 17 different countries, over all day long, my organs work well, all of that, every single moment of the day, you keep me alive and you sustain me and you protect me. That's the case for all of us, beloved. Our sovereign Lord protects us and yet we take Him for granted and we don't live by the conviction that He is for us and with us. But He is with us. Philippians 4.4 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Listen to this. The Lord is near. So, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is near. He's with us. J.C. Rao writes, quote, The plain duty of the Christian is to live with an antidote against all fears of the great unseen world. That antidote is faith in an unseen Savior and constant communion with Christ. Armed with that antidote and seeing Him who is invisible, nothing need make us afraid. We travel on towards a world of spirits. We are surrounded even now by many dangers. But listen to this. With Jesus for our shepherd, we have no cause for alarm. With him for our shield, we are safe. End quote. The disciples came to experience this. Once Jesus got in the boat, they worshipped him and they learned to trust in him in a greater way. Third, third, we've seen the devotion and the salvation of Christ Notice third, the compassion of Christ. The compassion of Christ in verses 53 to 56. Here in this last section, we have a a summary report, really, of the Lord's ministry after the 5,000 and the walking on water miracle. And Mark tells us that Jesus continued, as he continues to minister, as soon as he gets to a land called Gennesaret, there is already a mob of people waiting for him. How common is that, right? People flocking to him constantly. Notice verse 54, they, they recognized him. Many of these people had perhaps been recipients of the food the day before, the feeding of the 5,000. Others had seen other miracles of our Lord. They know what Jesus is capable of, and they want more physical blessings, but they don't love the giver of those blessings, nor believe in him, right? They're fickle crowds. Verse 55, they ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. I mean, clearly their focus was on my physical needs being met. They didn't understand the significance of who was before them. And frankly, you can understand if you're the Lord Jesus, two years or so into his ministry here, he could be weary of being used Tired of people demanding things from him, using him, wanting his gifts, not believing in him, however, or wanting him. And maybe he could throw his hands up in the air, forget you crowds, that's it. The end of it, of prosperity is done for you on the, on the physical level. Yet Mark tells us, notice in verse 56, wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, that is whether in unpopulated uh, populated areas or the outskirts, They were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being cured. It isn't that the fringe of his cloak had some mystical healing power. 
It's the one who was wearing that garment, right? Who had unlimited power. But mark it. Though these people had seen Jesus' miracles and were not believing in him, what did he do? He continued to help these people. He was kind and compassionate to people, listen to me, beloved, who didn't deserve his help. Man, that's hard on the human level, isn't it? For us to do. We are wired to do the opposite. We tend to help those whom we deemed worthy of our help. Jesus cared for people unreservedly who did not deserve his help. He was compassionate, had tender pity, as we saw last week, for these multitudes. This is what we call God's common grace here. That God is kind to and good to all people, even people who reject and rebel against Him. Every day, every hour, every minute, He does His enemies good who reject Him. He sustains them. He keeps them alive. He provides for their basic needs, food and water and all of those things, allows them to live in His world. And yet, people don't acknowledge God, don't thank Him. They become futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of idols, right? That's Romans 1. People don't acknowledge their Creator for His goodness and His common grace. But listen to me. One day, when Christ returns... He won't come as a servant who came to suffer on the cross to pay for sins. The second time He comes, the next time He comes, He will come as the ultimate judge to reward those who have trusted in Him, but to judge those who have rejected Him over and over and over again. You want to hear a sad thing? Most of the people who interacted with Jesus that we read about in the Gospels went to a place called hell. Hell. Can I remind you, if you do not know Christ this morning, if you have not turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, hell is a real place that you're going to. It's a real place. A real place of real torment where pain does not go away. It's forever and ever and ever. And the torment in hell is so excruciating and so eternal. Listen to me as a reminder to rebel sinners of the serious consequences of their sin. And listen to me. Your rejection of God's love freely offered to you over and over again in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So if you don't know Christ this morning, can I ask you, what is the condition of your heart this morning towards Jesus? Is your heart tender or is it hardened toward Christ? Are you like one of these multitudes who love Jesus' gifts but didn't trust Jesus as Savior, as Lord? See, there are people like this all over America and so-called Christian churches. 
People who attend Sunday morning worship services, who are involved in churches, who love the benefits of association with God and God's people. They love a, a perspective of Jesus that he's a, he's a snuggly and cuddly Jesus of their own creation. They love to hear the stories of Jesus healing people, meeting physical needs, being compassionate. And they say, what a loving God. I mean, what a loving guy. What a nice little Jesus. Oh, he exists only for me. But they don't cherish him. They don't treasure him. They don't believe that he's God come in the flesh to live a perfect life that you could never live, to die and suffer in your place, to pay for your sins, but rose from the dead three days later. Victoria is over sin and death. Can I plead with you this morning? Harden not your heart any longer to the Lord and Savior of humanity, Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from your sins and from eternal separation in hell from your Creator God. Believe in Him. Put your trust in Him. Be reconciled to God this morning. And for those of us who are Christians, relish, beloved. Celebrate your identity in Jesus Christ. That if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you've trusted in him, beloved, he is our protector. We need not fear no matter what we go through in life. Amen? We can trust him. We can trust him. He's a faithful and merciful high priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son. Oh, Lord, your precious son, thank you for the lessons that we learn about his character and just his glory. Help us to behold him so that we worship him, so that we trust him, so that we live for him. Help us to want to tell other people about him. If we are not gripped and captivated by his glory, Lord, we will not tell anybody else about him. Father, help us. Help us to be captivated by the glory of Christ so that we would be disciple-making disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.